This is Sports Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Campbell Dobbin. This is episode two. And boy, do we have a great guest on today. He has a YouTube channel, a podcast called the Mikey Lewis Podcast. He films, edits, and uploads his videos, I guess you could say, with multiple former celebrities, athletes, and he has reached... I would say above 25,000 25, subscribers, I believe. If, if, if I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh, he is Mike O'Donnell, a good friend. Mike, how are you? Good to see you today, and thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Campbell. Uh, you know, it's uh, always an honor and uh, you know, a pleasure to uh, help a friend out and uh, have a talk chat about like uh you know topics that are uh you know pertaining to things we like so uh, i look forward to uh doing this so if i recall we both share an interest of liking the nfl and also when we were younger we had this imaginary tale of wanting to be professional wrestlers and wanting to try out for the wwe but i guess like the both of us it couldn't work out for us so my first question in regards to wrestling in WWE is how did you get into wrestling? What caught your eye about it? And any any wrestlers in particular from the past or present now just like caught your eye? And how did that make you feel as a kid to see that joy in watching your favorite wrestlers perform? Well, you know, Campbell, uh... Obviously, you know, there's been, you know, different generations of wrestling. You know, you've had your Attitude Era, uh, you know, Ruthless Aggression, like more so PG now. But even back a ways during like the days of, uh, you know, Hulk Hogan, um, Roddy Piper, Jimmy Snuka, Andre the Giant. My, uh, you know, father and his grandfather, or his father rather, you know, grew up watching that. So... My dad kind of was instilled that from and passed on it from his father, and he kind of just passed it on to me. So from a young age, I was pretty much, you know, bred into, you know, watching, uh, you know, wrestling through, uh, you know, my dad with like DVDs of, uh, you know, old uh, pay-per-views and shows. And, um, you know, he would get me like all the action figures. I used to collect like all the action figures. So I actually still have them up in my basement, dude. There's like over thousands of them you know um yeah it kind of started from there and um you know they had like the for the people that uh you know remember um they had like the what was called like the 24 7 um wwe program that they had on on demand shout out on demand um that was uh netflix before netflix was netflix so it was amazing i used to right like, I, still, I, I used to go on it all the time in 24 i used to like watch like little like snippets of of stuff uh wwe or like other sports in general but most of all like 20 the 24 7 stuff was just amazing like it like brings so much nostalgia for like us now because like like you said like you like watch hulk hogan ultimate warrior andre the giant rick flair ricky the dragon steamboat and like the heart foundation later coming on it's so amazing how like 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 the late 80s into early 90s like helped like signify this sort of generation as like the past generations 
in professional wrestling. Of those who watched before us and they would tell stories and it's great. I remember my father, he told me uh, when uh, George Yamo Steele would bite the turnbuckle with his teeth or he watched Yokozuna or, or oh, see Ultimate Warrior or the Fire and it, it's just amazing how like the stories like he and other people have told just like get brought to us and I think it's so cool yeah man it's definitely uh, you know a cool thing but I'd say uh, you know growing up that um, although it's like the cliche cliche thing to say and obviously if I had more of a pull in it um, you know it probably wouldn't be the case but I'd say growing up because um Hulk Hogan, there's obviously always been like a big name in like each generation, you know, I had like Hogan during like that era, Cena has been like basically the face from like, you know, ruthless aggression through the beginning of PG era. Um, so it's like really easy to, uh, you know, pick those guys to like, I guess, root for and like have them as your favorite. I, I remember always um, on the old WWE uh, video games. I would uh, make my dad play the Royal Rumble and tell him to pick Hulk Hogan every time and uh, you know, play against, uh, I would always win because I was too scared to uh, you know, play myself. But yeah, I in terms of like, um, you know, people growing up that were like my uh, you know, favorites, um, you know, just from like all first glance, I mean, you know, Hulk Hogan was someone that, uh, you know, I went through my phase of liking, obviously, John Cena at points. That grew out of that fast. I mean, I was John Cena for Halloween in fourth grade. Uh, so, but I grew out of that and, um, you know, was able to uh, like and uh, follow wrestlers that I actually enjoyed for, like, what they were, not from, like, a promotional standpoint, because I feel like at a young age, you know, we're more inclined to, uh, you know, Root for guys like Hogan and Cena who are promoted more by the company and are like, it's easy to, it's almost like a bandwagon effect. You ever have like a real, like the New England Patriots, like it's easy to latch on to a team like that or like LeBron and NBA. But dude, I, when I tell you I became a huge fan of Dolph Ziggler um, back when I was in sixth grade, I've always felt, and even before then, when he uh, first came in, I know he had his, uh, you know, little silly Spirit like- squad. He was a spirit squatter before then, but when he first came in, uh, repackaged, I think, in, uh, what was it, 09, and he had that whole, uh, you know, introducing himself gimmick. Um, he always had, he was always been the full package, dude, and call me crazy, but if booked right, he could have been, or, you know, would have been the modern day Shawn Michaels, in my opinion. Um, and he's definitely been wrong done, I feel, but his cash in dude the night after 29 i was at that mania the night before me too all the people were chanting we want ziggler during the uh del rio swagger um title match want him to cash in after and then he ends up doing it the night before honestly that's in my opinion top three uh you know cash ins aside from uh the original edge one and uh seth rollins so I know, I mean, I look at Dolph Ziggler now and he's like one of the hardest working wrestlers in 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 the company. And I remember hearing those chants, we want Ziggler, we want Ziggler. And I wrestled in 29. I was probably up in the 300s hearing that all the way through the whole arena uh, stadium. And the night after, and 
uh, I mean, you could you could tell at uh, the place we call Isaac Center that is now closed, formerly Cardinal, formerly Brandon Burn Arena, named after former governor. And once his music hit, and you hear the lyrics, I hear the trouble. The, you can hear the biggest pop in the world come from an area in New Jersey called the Meadowlands, aka the swamps of Jersey, just like beaming down on 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 the whole like. And everyone knew it was gonna it was gonna happen that night. He was gonna get booked to win the title, and of course, like it's it's probably one of the best moments in that decade. And like you said, uh, I no one thought Rollins was gonna cash in that night because everyone thought Lesnar was gonna put Reigns over, and it was like that. And then once you heard his thing go, you can hear the, you could see the first row of fans look, and they had their hands up and they're like in disbelief. And I remember it was either I remember watching a YouTube video. It was. Edge's, I believe, first or second cash, and I loved both of them because the first one was a New Year's resolution. Revolution. I'm sorry, and he, it's like Edge, it's like that heel persona, like you're meant to hate him. He, it's John Cena. He just survived the elimination chamber. He's all busted open and stuff, and all you see is. The evil Mr. McMahon walked down with that purpose, walk up with the purpose on that stage, and he, and all you hear is you think you know me, and everyone just goes absolutely stunned, and Edge like, like that sadistic way, just hands the boss the briefcase, and he's walking down the ramp, and he literally gives two spears, and that's it. He wins the championship, and the other one I remember is when he cashes in to win the World Heavyweight Championship. SmackDown after Mark Henry came in and absolutely beat the crap out of the Undertaker and stuff, and he won it like, and that that's lived by his nickname as the Ultimate Opportunist that night, and I think that could be one of the best moments I believe in WWE. I love cashins because you never know what's gonna happen, and uh, I mean, could, and also could you like go on like I. I would like want to ask you like what is the best moment you've seen on TV now and indoor live if you ever seen the best moment live so like for me um in person or just me watching like as it was you know, either, either or either or well that was definitely a big one with the Ziggler cash in, as we just, you know, previously alluded to. Um, another big one was actually had something to do with Ziggler as well. Um, is when Sting made his debut in the, you know, 2014 uh, Survivor Series um, elimination match because obviously, you know, spoilers and, and uh, things like that were like, you know, huge uh, things still are. But I don't know, for some reason, I don't really recall ever, um, you know, stumbling across any reports of Sting potentially signing with WWE or appearing at the show. So I was pretty much blind to it. And then um, to have uh, 
what was essentially like a real life thing with you know a three on one members three members left of uh, authority left and just Ziggler who it, it was almost like real life storytelling with it's like the odds are stacked against Ziggler with like the authority which is actually the case behind the scenes with Ziggler you know them not giving them a push so it was almost like a real life thing playing out and it's like eating at me a bit because I am like this is my favorite guy and I'm just like oh here we go again he's just gonna like you know lose and swear to see the same thing play out with them basically giving us you know false hope with Ziggler and then to have Sting show up in of itself and then Ziggler to also win was huge um the streak ending I watched that live when that happened man I uh wasn't just utter like I legitimately was so accustomed to you know having watched so many Undertaker streak matches live in my day to where it actually happened to where I legit was just sitting there I didn't really react because I legitimately even though you seriously it's a clear cut one two three I was like for some reason in my mind and head it didn't process that it was three and I legitimately thought it was like a two count or something or that like I don't know like I was just like Wait, what? Like, this is just not happening right now. So, those are some things that, uh, you know, come to mind. I also got pretty excited over the Hardy Boys coming back at uh, WrestleMania 33. So, that was big, too. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I remember looking at WWE.com, that WrestleMania 30. And my first instinct was like, no, this can't be right. This can't be right. This can't be right. And I'm looking on Twitter and stuff. Back in the day when, like, it's, like, starting to, like, be, like, crazy. And I just, like, started... I was crying because, like, I never really thought it would happen. And it's funny because you look at, like, a a 13-year-old kid cry because his favorite wrestler's streak is over. And I think that solidified towards, like, the end of his run because we knew he was... 50 years old at that he was gonna be 50 years old at that time and like he like was he started to become part-time two years prior after that amazing or I should say three years prior that first match with Triple H and WrestleMania 27 and then a year later end of an era happened I watched that at a, at a friend's house, and I couldn't believe it too. I thought I thought Triple H was gonna end the streak, but I think it was. They said that a four-year storyline, two matches with Sean, two matches with Hunter. It was just that that was a good storyline. And then you had the Punk match where we were at. That was a great storyline because Punk at the time he recently lost the championship with the 400-day reign. He was that that the biggest heel at the time. He was looking to wrestle somebody, and unfortunately had the passion of Paul Bearer at that time. And then they made they made and put that into a storyline, I guess. And then they wrestled the Undertaker, and that was that. So I think that was probably one of the coolest like. Like not coolest, but like one of the most like important storylines I've seen over the past decade. But I think my favorite moment now is when Kofi Kingston got that huge push last year, and he finally 
climbed the mountaintop. Danny Bryan put him over and he won the championship at WrestleMania. And when I tell you, I watched probably week after week after week of him technically being like profiled, I guess, because like in the storyline, he this and that, he, oh, he's not fit to be champion, this and that. And he got a match, he went through match and match and match. Like saying, oh, you're not worthy to be champion. You're, you're still just the mid Carter and stuff. And then for him to finally reach that mountaintop and become champion. And he's like, loudest ovation I've ever seen watching on TV. And you can, and I remember looking at um, Byron Saxton, the commentator. And like, you can hear like the, in his voice because him as an African-American, finally getting an African-American WWE champion. Well, not really that, a WWE champion, but a, I guess he's WWE champion, the, in the, in the fact that like something good has happened for the company and it had a massive ovation like just for the whole build up to that match right so I know we've talked a little bit bunch about WWE this and that so a week ago I guess a week ago the last ride Chapter 5, I guess, and there was a huge cliffhanger, I guess you could say, with the last few minutes of it. The man known as the dead man, the phenom, Lord of Darkness, Prince of Darkness, Big Evil, any nickname we could give him, he's been there for 30 years. He's he's literally our childhood. The Undertaker, I believe we believe, and there's no whole crap about it he has announced his retirement from wrestling uh, personally it, it pains me to realize that he is not probably going to wrestle anymore because he's up there in age he's 55 he's done anything and everything he did he did for the business he's one of the most respected guys in the company he was a locker room man for all those years. He made stars. He put people over. He he gave back to what he thought was good for the company. He was so loyal for all those years. I want you to pick a moment about The Undertaker that caught your attention as a kid. And what's like the best thing about The Undertaker is character-wise that made you think he is probably the best wrestler of all time. And would you put him on a wrestling Mount Rushmore with all those greats as well? Wow. Yeah, when when you think about, you know, particular moments, man, there is, uh, you know, a lot that could, uh, uh, you know, come to mind. Um when I first really started like, you know, I guess you could say um, taking like a huge uh, liking to The Undertaker was during like uh, his um, three-way feud with um, Batista and, um, you know, Edge. Because like as a kid, I always kind of like feared him in a way, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, once I, once I, I started liking him, 
was around that time with uh, Batista and Edge when they were all feuding for the belt. Um, you know, I wasn't a huge. Uh, I was always like, you know, doing like the stereotypical thing, which was, you know, root against the heel and hope that like he gets like his uh, comeuppance in a way. So I was like uh, hoping that uh, Undertaker could, uh, you know, seek out and, uh, you know, exact revenge on Edge for, you know, cashing in on him while he was all bloody and beat up. Um, yeah, that, his, uh, you know, feud with uh, Kane at multiple, uh, you know, occasions with Kane were all, you know, great. But um, I'd say, like, honestly, my favorite um, feud that I've seen him in was probably the one with Orton. I think that the storytelling there was... Um, magnificent and um you know i think they did a fine job with that and uh they made both of them look uh really you know strong coming out of that and uh you know it's one of those rare moments in uh you know wwe when you uh you know kind of capitalize on the momentum of both guys and both of them come out um you know strong and nobody gets hurt out of the uh, situation I always thought what's more scarier as as a kid seeing your favorite team lose or looking at the Undertaker closing the door of the hell in a cell and him rolling his eyes and the fire shooting up or either him like rolling his eyes raising his hand up hearing the sound of thunder running that was that was scary as a kid because you, you, you as a kid you would Roll your eyes, you do the throat slash, you would do a signature pose as a kid. Because, like, you, you, like, were so invested into him because he was something else. He wasn't like, oh, this and that. It's a character that's supposed to be dead. And an old Western cowboy that's literally, like, like unborn, I get on dead I guess and he like for him to involve involve like multiple personas as well with the corporate ministry uh please excuse me because uh before I did not mention about like clean stuff American badass I apologize for saying that but that persona because it was him in real life him from Texas, he's Texas, he's a Texas boy in real life, Mark Calloway, he's from that area, and for him in the motorcycle with the American flag and stuff, uh, the bandana, coming out the limb biscuit, and that that was a whole different side, but like you said, the whole Orton rivalry in 2005, when Orton's father, Cowboy Bob Orton was involved, uh, when he hit him with the cast, or back at SummerSlam when Orton technically won clean one, two, three, and then the fan came in and ultimately it was Cowboy Bob Orton, or like I mentioned, the Hell in a Cell match at Armageddon where the famous picture of him, or video, I guess, of him closing the door, and that strikes fear in your eyes. Like, you, like your eyeballs are like open wide, and like you're like, Oh crap, like this is actually happening. Um, like Randy Orton's wrestling Undertaker, he's about to get his come up for being the bad guy that he is. So, uh, I mean, 
it's it's really crazy that like he's just like done I guess you could say and but it's good so uh, to move off upon that and I want to talk about another wrestler that has caught my attention because she is one of the best wrestlers in the indie scene or professional wrestling in a way. She is the daughter of Tully Blanchard, who is a WWE Hall of Famer with the one and only Four Horsemen. And she is Tessa Blanchard. And I am a big fan of Tessa Blanchard, not only because her in-room work is impeccable, because she, I think she gets it because she's just amazing in a way, and like her in-room ability, because like her character is like, she don't take crap from anybody, she's fearful, she's, she doesn't have an ounce of fear in her, she's willing to take anybody, any challenge and stuff, and she has been away with her husband in Mexico and ultimately she was stripped of her Impact World Championship and ultimately fired, which is very shocking because it was two o'clock in the morning, Friday, two o'clock in the morning. I DM'd you on Instagram telling her that her title was stripped and she was ultimately fired. I need your reaction on this because this is really unexpected because her situation of in another country and stuff and there's big rumors saying that she said no to giving promos to send to the impact writers and producers but I want to give your thoughts on like what had, what Tessa Blanchard has like been to each like going to each company and how like big of a star she is and where could she go from here? Because now she's a free agent. Well, obviously, you know, there's un- undeniable, you know, her uh, in-ring ability and like what she brings to the table, regardless of you know her uh, you know, standing, whether she's champ or not, or whatever company she's in. She's, uh, you know, she's one of those talents that comes along where it's kind of just like in her blood in a way. Um, as far as the situation, you know, from what I read, it's, uh, you know, a little uh, misleading. There's, um, you know, details that don't add up, you know, in a way, and it's a little, uh, you know, puzzling. But um, if I'm Tessa, from what I read, you know, she's uh, looking to, uh, didn't it say something about, um, you know, her not wanting to travel back from Mexico? Yeah, like the, I guess it, so. It had, it had something to do with the virus, right? Yeah, but it's funny because, like, isn't there, like, not really, like, travel restrictions coming back into the U.S. from Mexico? And then, like, people are, like, telling, or, like, telling stories about her, like, not being very, like, nice or, like, very thoughtful in the backstage area or behind the scenes her like being very like demanding I guess because like I don't know she I guess like I, and I don't want to be like argumentative I don't think she's very privileged because she's the daughter of a hall of famer she works extremely hard and she she busts her 
but night in and night out to deliver good good showing for fans around the world and who are watching on television. So I I think it's very difficult to see like a big star like her now be out of a job and not knowing where she can go. Yeah, I mean, uh, whatever she ultimately, you know, decides to do, whatever her reasoning is for, you know, not allegedly sending promos or, you know, coming back and showing up, I heard something about, you know, her looking to uh, get married. I mean, that's completely, uh, you know, her prerogative. She's a, you know, grown woman, and it's uh, her personal life ultimately. But, um, you know, and in TNA's or Impact's case, it's... uh, you know, it's it's ultimately a business. So if you're not getting your you know money's worth, then I guess uh, cut ties while you can. So it's gonna be interesting to see where she goes from here. I could uh, see her going to AEW. Yeah, I, I think it's her going there too because I'm not too big on the women's division in AEW. I watched it a bit, and it's not really something huge for AEW women's division I mean you look at the NXT women's division that it's huge I mean they're very talented but I think more could be invested in the women's division when the time is right I guess to have a big star come from an indie scene to work with the wrestlers and make it more stronger so I want to I know we want to talk about football and stuff but there's one other person that I've told you about that has caught my eye since he's left Impact and come to WWE and he's now in NXT. He is probably one of the most courageous wrestlers I've ever seen because his in-ring talent and character persona is impeccable. And I think you might know who I'm talking about. Carrying on Cross, formerly known as Killer Cross in Impact, and who is now with his wife Scarlett Bordeaux in NXT. And I'm going to tell you this: he is going to be a megastar if they book him right. Why do I say that? Because his immune ability is second to none. He's probably one of the most athletic guys for a guy that's his size, and him being this psychotic guy character like that persona it's like we haven't had that in years WWE and he I without a doubt I would love to see him get a big push and hopefully he gets called up probably next year because he deserves that right because like you look at him like doing matches like He's. I saw literally he faced Bronson Reed the other day and he gave him a suplex like it was nothing and he was literally no sell uh, he was literally no selling it and no selling shots it was just amazing his him in general is like the perfect wrestler and I want your thoughts on Cross and of course like him working his his wife on his, not his wife his girlfriend on screen and how that is going to like 
how that's going to change in the future, not change in the future, but like how how them working together is better for NXT going forward. Well, yeah, I couldn't have, uh, you know, said it any better myself, um, you know, what you just said. It all comes down to, uh, you know, how they ultimately book them. But, yeah, there's no doubt about it. The guy's a megastar and deserves, um, you know, you know, what he should get. Um, as far as, you know, him with his, uh, you know, wife or, uh, you know, on screen, those, uh, you know, storylines can get a little tricky. It's more of a hit and miss. You know, um, with like a, you know, male with a female, uh, you know, by his side as, as we've seen in the past. Um, you know, I'd say in this case, it might pay dividends um, just because of like, you know, who, you know, who he is as a, uh, you know, wrestler and performer to where I feel like anything that he's involved with uh, can make it work. So that's pretty much my stance on it. That's really good. So now we will set aside the world of professional wrestling and into the National Football League. And Mike, I know I see your uh, banner pennant in the back, the Super Bowl 40 champion. Seattle Seahawks, the members of the National Football Conference West Division, and with a division that has the runner-up of the Super Bowl, as in the San Francisco 49ers. What, how do you think uh, this division will be with the Niners, the Rams, of course, the Cardinals, and your Seahawks? And how can the Seahawks or should I say, what like got you into Seahawks as a, as a kid? Was it the Legion of Boom? Was it Sean Alexander back in the day with Matt Hasselbeck in the backfield? Or the Beast Quake, of course, against the Saints with Marshawn Lynch going absolutely AWOL on the on the rim, on the Saints defense. But like, is there like a huge like upbringing to you as a uh, Seahawks fan or any memory that you had in your ring? So actually, the story is quite interesting. So I actually only uh, got into football when I was in fourth grade. So at that point, I actually played football like in the peewees before I actually started watching the NFL. I didn't start watch, seriously watching the NFL towards the um, tail end or middle to tail end of the 2010 season, which was ultimately the one that uh, the Packers beat the Steelers that season. But those playoffs was actually when, you know, I uh, started watching when Marshawn Lynch, my first ever playoff game in the NFL I've ever watched was the Marshawn Lynch Seahawks uh, and Saints game run the wild card round. And um, so that kind of gave me like a, a big dose to, you know, fight into in a way. Um, but yeah, I know all about like uh, Matt Hasselbeck and Sean Alexander. I think they kind of got a little bit of a raw end of the deal in that Super Bowl they burst the Steelers in with the officiating. But no, to be completely quite honest, Campbell, my house growing up was, uh, you know, all Dallas Cowboys and uh, in my family, majority of them. So I was kind of bred into that, you know, just I got instilled that from a young age. But once I grew older, I kind of branched off. So I became a fan of the uh, Seahawks at 
the towards the end of Russell Wilson's rookie season, right? So I liked Russell Wilson. I liked the new uniforms they had. They were really flashy. I liked them when they first came out, and I liked the makeup of the team at the time. They were young, gritty, scrappy, um, and very defensive and physical-oriented. Um, you know, you had uh, Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, Sherman, um, you know, those are the Legion of Boom guys. I was like, kind of like the, uh, you know, heart and soul of the team. But you had Marshawn Lynch, who kind of was like that. Uh, he was kind of the guy that got everybody up and like motivated. Because if you see him dragging, you know, bodies left and right every play, that gives the defense extra fuel to want to like, you know, show up and play. Um, Russell Wilson was young at the time, so he didn't really have to do a whole lot in the early stages of his career to uh, really you know, carry them. It wasn't until basically um, his, like, fourth year in the league that was when he really started coming into his own as a passer. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of when I started becoming a Seahawks fan. And, um, you know, I got the occasional, like, whole bandwagon thing thrown at me when they won the Super Bowl my first full year as a fan. So I was like, all right, <laughs> like, sure thing. But, um, you know, I uh, – I think that um, the Seahawks last year, I don't really care what anybody says. We swept the Niners in my eyes. You know, we beat them the first time. The second time, you know, we had a raw end of the deal on that with, like, some uh, missed call and then, like, that whole thing at the goal line. But, um, you know, injuries shot us down towards the end of last season, man. We had uh, Josh Gordon get suspended again. All our running backs got hurt. Um, we had offensive linemen getting hurt. It was just a mess, dude. And I honestly feel like, dude, because we were really coming into our own before the injuries. And I think most people would agree with me when I say this. I say if we had at least, you know, a proper running back group, at the very minimum, we'd beat Green Bay in the uh, divisional round. We were this close, dude. Um, you know, so in my eyes, we at least were uh, NFC, a few injuries and, you know, and honestly, even with the injuries, we still could have or should have arguably won that game in Green Bay is what it is. But we were fairly close to, uh, you know, playing in San Francisco for an NFC title and um, could have very well took it considering in my eyes, I'd say we have the Niners number the last how many seasons we played them. Majority of the times we beat them, they might have beaten us like once or twice out of the last 12 times we played them so um as far as the division goes i'm excited man um you know i think the cardinals made a lot of moves and uh they always seem to have our number for some reason whenever it's in seattle so we always have tough games with them so they're definitely by all accounts a threat you know they drafted isaiah simmons which i feel is a little bit of a you know big pickup a little bit of a steal um surprises fell to them uh, DeAndre Hopkins speaks for itself. That That's the biggest steal of the offseason. Um, so they're definitely going to be a tough out, maybe even a sleeper playoff team. I like our odds, getting our you know guys that were hurt back. Uh, we picked up Greg Olson, who is a little, you know, past his prime, but I feel like now with the steady quarterback and in this situation where he doesn't have to be like the prime here go-to guy like how he was uh, – Carolina a little bit in the passing game for, uh, you know, those years. He could be, like, a pretty solid addition to us. 
Our defense isn't great, but we're a little scrappy. It's going to be interesting to see if, you know, Jadavian Clowney cracks or not comes back to us. Um, the Niners are always going to be tough. You know, they got a pretty good coaching staff, uh, tough defense. You know, they uh, can really run the ball and pound you. What scares me with the Niners, aside from George Kittle, man, uh, you know, they lost Emmanuel Sanders, who is their number one receiver, but Debo Samuel really showed promise as a wide receiver one, but he just broke his foot recently. So that wide receiver room is looking a little, uh, you know, not so intimidating right now. So, I mean, yeah, that's my stance on them. And as far as the Rams go, dude, they're in the same boat for me as the Houston Texans. I think they're the Texans of the NFC, and I don't think they're – I think they're going to finish last in that division be quite honest I'm not too afraid of them at all but um, I'll let you uh you know take the floor so uh yeah I mean like you said that game in Seattle what was Pete Carroll thinking taking that delay game penalty he literally had Marshawn Lynch in the backfield couldn't give him another touchdown ultimately you go two straight passing plays and then I believe it's a passing or some some kind of penalty there was a non-call non-call and but I mean we had the game won anyway before those two plays happened and ultimately Pete Carroll takes a, a game penalty and it's it's funny like Pete Carroll he's he's a he's a good coach but at, at the at the most particular time he can't get it done. What yeah. happened in Super Bowl forty nine was atrocious. What happened in that game was literally atrocious because it was the same thing it, it was the same scenario like you guys are playoff bound anyway you could have you could have literally won that division because that division was like wide open during the last two weeks of the season and you let you let the 49ers clutch on your home field which is pretty crazy because I was screaming at the TV saying what are you doing this cannot happen. You're supposed to run. Give your running back the ball. The guy that has carried the franchise came back and, and helped your team come to the playoffs because your running backs were hurt all year. And, I mean, as far as, like, the 49ers go, they're still going to be good. The Cardinals, they'll be okay this year. I, I believe so. And... The Rams, I'm not too high on the Rams this year, like you said. Um, and it stinks because I had to see all four of those NFC West teams come play my New York football Giants. And let me tell you something about the Giants. A lot of people are writing them off this year because of the moves that GM Dave Gettleman has made. And I'm telling you this right now. I said the other day he had a good draft, but I might have to recorrect myself saying he said he had a great draft because we got an offensive tackle that's very good and Andrew Thomas. We got Cam Brown from late in and late in I believe the third round from Penn State. We got the steal, Xavier McKinney, a safety from Alabama. And I mean we have a young, gritty defense. We have a whole new coaching staff. Joe Judge makes you want to run through a wall when he talks. We have, we're going to run the Dallas Cowboy defense literally. Literally with former head coach Jason Garrett. We have a home, we're going to have a whole new defense package. And it's funny because uh, 
our kicker, Alger Ross, has had an off-field issue. And we don't know if he's going to be released or fined or suspended. But there's one guy that has been inching to get back onto an NFL field. And he's kicker Steven Goskowski, formerly of the New England Patriots. And my thought is, oh, Goskowski. He was coached by Joe Judge, special teams guy. And Joe Judge he coached, he was on the same staff at Alabama, Belichick staff, the Patriots. This guy knows how to win, and he knows how to do it fundamentally. And I'm very excited with the Giants this year. People say that they're gonna not that they're gonna make the playoffs as a wild card or not make the playoffs to have an okay season. And uh, I think it's going to be fun. So, and like you said, you grew up with Cowboy fans in your family, and you're a Seahawks fan. Imagine you were a Giants fan. How much heckling you must have got listening to Cowboys fans saying, "We got five World Championships. We're America's team." And like I say to all my Cowboy friends and fans, it's going to be the same thing. You're either gonna win the division by going. Nine and seven, or eight and eight, or you also losing lose the division by the second to last week of the year because the Eagles suddenly wake up and Carson Wentz is just throwing balls from all over the place, and and it's pretty spectacular. And I'm looking at the Redskins this year. I'm not too fond of the Redskins. Yeah, they got changed on Terry McLaurin. Dwayne Haskins. It's like uh, it's like Ohio State all over again. <laughs> but it's funny because the the Giants got free agent deals with Austin Mack, Benjamin Victor, both wide receivers from Ohio State and stuff. But what do you like? I know like you probably know a lot of people who are Giants fans or Jets fans or Cowboys or Eagles fans. Do you have, like any thoughts on those teams? Like how like. They're going to be good this year because their divisions are like a little bit wide open. You have the AFC North with the Ravens, the Browns, the Bengals. Then you got the, the AFC East in which Jets fans are verbally saying to me and everybody that they will win the division. And I'm saying no because there's a team in upstate New York that literally almost beat the Patriots last year and they should have done it and they shouldn't have beat the Texans last year because the Texans we all know they can't they can't save a playoff game for their lives and that team's called the Buffalo Bills led by quarterback Josh Allen and what are your thoughts on those teams this year going into the season because we don't we might even not know if we have a season yet yeah, man, it's definitely, uh, you know, everything's up in the air as far as, you know, whether or not we have a season. But as far as, you know, I could just get right into, uh, you know, just my full analysis right here and predictions rapid fire and just, uh, you know, kind of answer it all. Um, as far as, like, the Jets thing goes, um, I'm just going to go division by division what I think right now. Yeah, as you just said, I think Buffalo is going to be a force this year. I... Um, you know, they have most of their defense, which is phenomenal back. They're all young. They, Like you said, they, they should have beat New England arguably twice last year. Um, 
the Texan game with another, you know, case of, you know, what they should have won. Uh, you know, they got most of their team coming back. They picked up Stefan Diggs, who's a true number one receiver on the outside, which was huge. So then they got him and, uh, you know, John Ross on the outside. And then, you know, they got Cole Beasley underneath. So that's huge. Um, so I think Buffalo, I actually have them winning that division. I think they're uh, third in the uh, American Football Conference seating-wise. And I don't see another team in the AFC East making the playoffs. As far as the North goes, Baltimore, you know, the rich keeps getting richer. Obviously, you know, they're 0-2 in the playoffs the last two years under Lamar, but there's no denying their uh, talent and team makeup. They got arguably the most loaded roster in the NFL, so they've got to be number uh, one in the AFC North. Um, I can't put them over Kansas City yet, though, because they haven't been able to beat them. And, you know, respect is always due to the Super Bowl champs. I think that Mahomes is definitely way more clutcher than Lamar. And Kansas City's got 20 out of their 22 starters back, so I have them actually going uh, back-to-back. But, you know, I have them as number one in the AFC. So I would have them as one, Baltimore as two, and Buffalo as three. Um, as far as a wild card team, though, coming out of the AFC North, I have Pittsburgh. I think that they have very underrated, talented defense. And, you know, Big Ben, some of the offense is back healthy, so that's a plus. So they, I'd see them, uh, you know, because there's seven teams that make it now, so I see them uh, possibly as like a six, I'd say, you know, making it. And uh, in the South, man, that's going to be a tough one. I don't think the Texans are going to be all too good. I don't see them making it. And I think Jacksonville is going to have the worst record in the league. So that would all come down to Tennessee and Indianapolis, to be quite honest. Tennessee obviously went on that Cinderella run at the end of last year. And I think that they're a very, um, you know, well-coached and, uh, you know, tough team. But they did lose their right tackle and, uh, you know, traded away their D tackle for a seventh round pick to Denver. So that's, uh, you know, a little confusing and puzzling to me. So I actually, believe it or not, have Indianapolis winning that division and getting the four seed because I think Phillip Rivers is a big addition. You know, their running back room just got better. They had some more receiver help. Their offensive line's great. So I think you give Phillip Rivers arguably the best O-line he's had in his career. And, uh, this could, um, you know, be the makings of something good this year for Indianapolis. But I have Tennessee as my wild card at the fifth slot, Pittsburgh as the sixth. And believe it or not, dude, I have Denver actually as my last wild card in the AFC. I'm very high on the Broncos this year. Not because of Drew Locke. Not because of Drew Locke. Because of who they got at the wide receiver court. That's going to be very scary. And they might play spoiler for those AFC West teams now. They might, man. You never uh, you never know. It's uh, going to be interesting to see. Uh, I think that they, what they tried to do was, uh, you know, add some speedsters on the outside to kind of match what KC has going on. And uh, their defense been like top 10 consistently. They just haven't really had the offense to help them out. So I... I'd say Denver's getting that seventh seed, but as far as the NFC goes, I'm very high on New Orleans this year, man. They uh, brought back Malcolm Jenkins, 
at safety and went out and finally got what um you know they needed opposite of Michael Thomas, which was another solid outside receiver, and they got that Emmanuel. Another Sam. Ohio State guy. Yeah. <laughs> so this is uh you know it's good. I think Saints are be the number one team to beat in the NFC. I think Green Bay is going to take a dip. I didn't like their off season. I don't think they really addressed any needs. And, um, you know, as much as I want to pick the Seahawks to uh, win the division, I definitely still have them making the playoffs. But, you know, like I said, with the Chiefs, you know, respect is, you know, given. And w- whether I like them or not, I got to give respect to the Niners and what they're due. So I could still put them as the, you know, West champs there. So I'd probably plug them in as the number two slot. And then from there, it gets quite tricky. I actually, believe it or not, have the Dallas Cowboys winning the NFC East and uh, getting the third I respect seed. that. Because I think that their offense is going to be scary, man. And I think Mike McCarthy is what they lack with Jason Garrett. I'd put Minnesota as my four. I think that maybe, you know, losing Stephon Diggs was a little tricky, but they definitely made up for it and, you know, had a really good draft. So... And as far as, you know, wild cards go for the NFC, um, Seattle, obviously, you throw in the mix. Um, It's hard to count out Green Bay because of Rodgers, but I think a sleeper playoff team this year, man, believe it or not, might be the Falcons. I've been hearing a lot of people talking about it, and, like, honestly, I can't really deny it. They went, like... Their, their last like seven games or something like that they went like five and two or something like that and they beat the uh, Saints and Niners down the stretch both in their building so it's hard to you know deny and that's that's really good I mean like you said the Cowboys they're going to be very scary in offense this year and with Mike McCarthy now and I, I believe so. Kellen Moore, which I arguably see the greatest college football quarterback of all time, just because of his record. But as as a quarterback coach and, and offensive coordinator, I think really the Cowboys are going to be the team to be in the NFC East and the uh, possibly NFC. I, I guess if the uh, Falcons do play spoiler to the Saints, I guess. I mean, the Saints have been robbed, cheated, whatever you want to call it. So, we're going to wrap it up here on the Sports Talk Podcast. Michael, thank you again for coming on today, talking about our two favorite things. Uh, growing up as kids, uh, talking about, I mean doing entrances, moves on on our bunk beds, I guess. I mean, playing with action figures, the old T- THQ games back in the day, playing on the on the Xbox 360 and whatnot, then hopefully shipping over to football and the coronavirus and how it's changing the football scenery and stuff and what to look forward from these teams. And I appreciate you again, and uh, I'll give you a little bit time for any th- final thoughts yeah man it was uh you know a pleasure in uh coming on here and having a little bit of a change of the guard i've been so used to talking about the challenge what seems like the last two months so uh it was definitely uh you know 
cool to step into a uh, you know a realm that uh you know I was previously used to and uh, again uh, chat with you man and uh you know I hope uh the, whoever watches this loves and uh, can resonate with what we were saying and uh you know this was a ton of fun thank, thank you uh make sure to go check out his uh YouTube channel um Mike Mike Lewis podcast and it's really interesting. He he takes an hour or an hour and ten minutes of his time, gets into contact with these amazing people from multiple channels who used to be these big celebrities, and asks them a bunch of great questions. And it's it's uh, pretty amazing to see what he's doing now, what I'm doing, and uh, it's pretty amazing. So again, this is the Sports Talk podcast with Campbell Davin. That was Mikey O'Donnell, a.k.a. Mikey Lewis Podcast. Remember, everybody, sports is the beacon of light and the beacon of hope. Do something today, tomorrow. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever. Have a good day today. Thank you again for watching. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe. Please follow Sports Talk Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. More updates will be coming along. And on Monday, we will have a special guest that will be announced in a certain amount of time and thank you again that is all